Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this opportunity we have to come together on the Holy Sabbath day to sing praises to your name, to study from your holy word, and to fellowship, uh, Lord, uh, with like believers, to come apart from the world and gain a rest on this day, to spend time with heavenly angels and then with the Holy Spirit be together in unity. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study uh, the present truth for this time. We know that time is short. Those who are Bible students know this. Most people see the signs of the times. They don't know what to do and what to make of it. And Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us to, to know and to understand what you have for us at this time to prepare us for what's soon ahead and for the coming of Jesus. Father, we've sinned. Every one of us have. And we pray for forgiveness. We pray that you will bless us uh, with your presence today and cleanse our hearts. May we come to know Jesus, who is the theme of prophecy. And uh, may we come to know him better because of this worship today. Please give me the words to speak here this morning throughout the day. May they be your words, Father, uh, not my opinions. And may be hearts, uh, make hearts prepared for the truth. We thank you for Jesus and pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, and and as uh, Jerome was saying, and we talked about it, Sean, just before you got here a little bit, it's hard and getting harder today uh, to to find people who are open to hear uh, about the Lord, to hear about the Bible, to hear about the truths. And in fact, in the bulletin, if you look at uh, the inside page there, I, I, I left a quote, or put a quote, it's from the book Acts of the Apostles, page 260, and it's very appropriate, I believe. She says, there are in the world today many who close their eyes to the evidences that Christ has given to warn men of His coming. They seek to quiet all apprehension, while at the same time the signs of the end are rapidly fulfilling. And the world is hastening to the time when the Son of Man shall be revealed in the clouds of heaven. Do we see that today? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we see it. She goes on, Paul teaches that it is sinful to be indifferent to the signs which are to precede the second coming of Christ. Those guilty of this neglect he calls children of the night and of darkness. He encourages the vigilant and watchful with these words. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And that's speaking of the second coming of Christ. Ye are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. We need to be sober, friends, as we're watching for the coming of the Lord. And so I was moved to to plan this, come closer to the interests the Lord impressed upon me. Uh, Those who are interested in hearing, because as we've mentioned before, it's getting harder to find those who are interested. The devil has uh, distractions, a million distractions, to grab people's attention, and they're working. I believe, though, there's going to come a time when the world's going to be shaken, and they're going to go, what is going on now? The Lord has to do something to remove the distractions. Now, He's not going to remove them completely, 
but it, something is going to happen. We read the parable of the ten virgins. They were asleep. Then the call came, the bridegroom cometh, and they were all awakened. There is going to be an event, I believe, that is going to awaken everyone. And so it's important for us to prepare for even that time. There are, there are those who are waking up. And so I wanted to begin this first uh, chance that we have to get into the Word, and I want to lay some foundation. And I'm going to be touching on something that is being taught a lot by Christians today, and I want to show the history of it. So today's going to be kind of a history lesson, and there will be some scripture involved in it as well. Um, but we need to be open to history. That's a part of understanding prophecy. I was talking with a church member one time, and he told me about a particular encounter that he had with someone who believed in the secret rapture. Now, it's been my experience that many people will tell you they believe in the secret rapture without really knowing what the secret rapture is entirely or whether, where the teaching uh, really originated. There are now several variations of this teaching that have popped up since its origin and it originated in Scotland many years ago. But I'm not going to get into all of them because that's like chasing the devil's rabbits. I'm going to share the truth of the Bible concerning this subject as well as how to rightly divide the word of truth. There was a Bible uh, writer who said this, and I believe it to be true in my experience. They said the best way to expose the fallacy of error is to present the evidences of truth. This is the greatest rebuke that can be given to error. Dispel the cloud of darkness resting on minds by reflecting the bright light of the sun of righteousness. And so even Jesus, he said in John 8, 32, he said, and ye shall know the truth. And what's the truth going to do? It's going to set us free. It's going to remove the guilt. It's going to teach us righteousness and how to live righteously. And so what Jesus said is, the promise was the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth. That truth is what is the light that will dispel the darkness. So we can spend, and many ministries and, and ministers do, they'll spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong, what is error, when they should be presenting what is the truth. And that truth will dispel the error. Okay, And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend a couple of Sabbaths here cutting this false teaching of the secret rapture open by the Word of God, which hopefully will give you confidence uh, to use that sword of the Spirit uh, to confront it when it comes your way, and it will come your way. And I would tell you, anyone who stands for truth, we're in a battle, we're in a war. The enemy is going to seek you out. And so we need to be prepared. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be prepared. And so we're going to look at prophecy and we're going to look at history to determine the truth. And I'd encourage you to, you know, make notes if you can. If you need something to write with, that's fine. We'll, we'll get into it. This is our first study. Um, but we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden where the devil really introduced his system of biblical interpretation to our world. That's where it began. I want you to notice... What he started there with Eve. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. And verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more subtle. That gives us a clue about how he behaves, isn't it? He's subtle. 
who is more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to notice that Satan launched his conversation with Eve by asking a seemingly innocuous question. Remember, subtlety. That's what he uses, subtlety. And his question was, has God said... So his opening ploy was to question God's word. Has God said? And then offer a counter-interpretation of God's actual intentions. He claimed to Eve that God was trying to hide knowledge from her. And what's more interesting to me, um, however, is that Satan has not only continued telling lies but he has honed and amplified his technique as he's been propelled toward the end of time. He knows that God has no intention of letting sin continue for eternity. Thank God for that. And so down through the ages, he's been quite aware that there uh, would come a point in time when it was going to be all or nothing. When everything was at stake for him. And we see his technique, I'll tell you friends, alive and well in Christian world today. We see it. Satan works to nullify, you see, the impact of the prophecies God has given through his Holy Spirit. Especially the prophecies that we're going to touch on that we find in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Dealing with the end times. We want to know about the end times because we're living in the end times. We don't need to hear about a flood, worldwide flood. That's not our our worry. We're not going to die in a worldwide flood, are we? That was Noah's present truth. And I'll be very plain. Today, many sincere Christians believe that God is going to rapture them out of this world before a period of time widely hailed as the tribulation. They've been taught, you see, that the 70th week that you find there in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9, and we're going to study about this. In fact, this afternoon we'll study about this prophecy. But they're being taught that that last week has been cut off from the 69 weeks. And then a bunch of things are made up about it. It's been cut off and moved in the future and the past and whatever. But is that true? Would God do that? Does that really make sense? Well, in order to understand this question or these questions, we need to make certain that we're using the principles and the, the system of interpretation that God has built into the Bible, not Satan's system of interpretation. And these are principles that I call treasure-finding tools. I like, you know, digging for treasure. Jesus said we're to dig as for lost treasure. And God has provided those tools in His Word on how to study. 
of the three major systems that we find today used to understand Bible prophecy, and that's what we're concerned about, only one of those systems is derived from the Bible's own uh, pages. And it was for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. And we want to lay hold of that one, don't we? But there's three systems that are primarily used. That's why I've entitled this message, One and Three Ain't Bad. That means the other two are bad. (laughs) There's one that's good, okay? Now, the three major systems by which prophecy is interpreted today are, first, what is called the historicist interpretation. That's understanding events to fulfill steadily and sequentially. When something gets fulfilled, we don't have to worry about it getting fulfilled again and again and again. I'll get more into detail about that in just a moment. The second one is called the futurist interpretation. What it does is it places all the fulfillment, most all of the prophecies, way in the future. We don't have to worry about it right now because that's way in the future sometime. And then the third is what they call the preterist interpretation. It actually does the opposite of futurism, it puts everything, almost all prophecy, in the past. All that happened a long time ago. Now we must understand that when we use God's method of interpretation, we may come up with results uh, that we won't, we may not like. It won't be politically correct, and I'll guarantee you, it won't be popular. Jesus said in John 15, He said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's not going to be popular. Truth is rarely accepted and it's never really popular. There's a pseudo-truth that we find today. And the attitude in our culture today is truth is what you say it is or what you believe it is. Well, that's chaos. That leads to anarchy. And that's just what our uh, enemy wants, isn't it? So, what do we find when we use these different methods of prophetical interpretation? We're going to take a look at it here. What about historicism? Historicists, they understand prophecy to be constantly fulfilling in a progression of events throughout history. That makes sense, doesn't it? Why would God give us a story and then we just kind of guess and if it repeats itself, we never know when it's been fulfilled or hasn't been fulfilled and that's chaos again, right? It's universally agreed that the historicist understanding was the one that was held by the Protestant reformers during the 16th century. John Knox, uh, Huss, Martin Luther, even Isaac Newton. We've all heard of Isaac Newton. John Wesley. They all used the historical method of interpretation. Everyone did. And that's what we're going to find here in history. Where that change happened and why it happened. William Miller and the Advent Pioneers, they used the historical method of interpretation. Why? Why did they do that? Well, not only does the Bible say this is the method we're to use, but it was the only method that makes sense of the truth. Okay? Speaking of William Miller, it said, 
a Bible writer said, he saw that the prophecies, so far as they had been fulfilled, had been fulfilled literally. Link after link of the chain of truth rewarded his efforts as step by step he traced down the great lines of prophecy. If you're not familiar with William Miller, he was moved by God to start studying his Bible. And he started with Genesis 1 and he would go one scripture at a time and he wouldn't move on until he completely understood it. And he went on by on all the way through the Bible. And he found principles and he would go back where he misunderstood and used the principles he learned to understand it. Great, great, uh, great example for us. But let me give you an example of this. In Daniel 2, and we'll get to this in a later study, Daniel 2 we find an image of a man that's composed from top to bottom of distinct types of metals. From the head of gold, the chest of silver, the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, feet of iron and miry clay. And then we see a rock that comes in and destroys the image and becomes a great mountain filling the whole earth. Now it's clear from Daniel's interpretation of the prophecy that it portrays a sequence of kingdoms. And we'll find this as we get into detail in another study. But, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the kingdom of God. This pattern is found again in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, okay, and elsewhere, and constitutes really a basic um, element in rightly dividing the Word of God. To rightly understand time prophecies, we look for an unfolding sequence of events. That's what we do. From the time of the prophet on down to the second coming of Christ. And this is what Daniel was laying out. It was the big picture. And then as we go on in prophecy, and this is what we're going to find, God starts giving more and more details. More and more details. So he gives us in prophecy the big picture first and and proves it through history. We can see. And then he goes through Daniel again and, and starts adding. He gives us the big picture and then a smaller picture of the big picture and then a smaller picture of that picture. He's filling in details for us. Okay? The historicist method of interpretation finds that the little horn power that's described there in Daniel chapter 7, for example, and the first beast that you find in Revelation 13 have the same characteristics and therefore are the same power. That's a Bible principle. The shared identifying marks between Daniel and Revelation for that power is this. First, well, they were among the first ten, those barbarian tribes. They were among those ten. So that places them where in this world? And I'm just giving you a real summary. We'll get into details a little bit later. Puts them in Europe, doesn't it? So we know that that power is not going to come up from South America or Africa or Australia or even North America. That places it in Europe. They came up after the ten divisions were already established. Well, they weren't established until 476 A.D., so we know it had to be right around in there. They would uproot three of those ten tribes, this power would. Well, we know that that happened. The Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, those three tribes were uprooted, the Bible says. They were actually destroyed. They no longer are around. They would be diverse from the other powers before them. That means that this particular little horn power and that first beast power isn't a military or civil only power. 
it's a religious and civil power that uses the military. <laughs> okay. They shall speak great words against the Most High. The blasphemy. Uh, they shall wear out the saints of the Most High. They're going to persecute God's true followers. We've seen this. They shall think to change times and laws. And we'll get to that. Um, their length of reign was 1260 years. Now the reason I'm sharing these things with you quickly here is because we're looking back at where this idea of the secret rapture originated and why. And so we got to understand prophecy to understand why it originated. So when Bible prophecy clearly identified that religio-political church system as the beast power uh, or antichrist of Bible prophecy, it actually resulted in a very uncomfortable situation. The finger of prophecy was pointing squarely at the Roman Catholic Church as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. That made things uncomfortable. Is it any wonder that the Catholic Church was then so violently uh, opposed to the Scriptures being available for everyone to read? There was such a stir created during the Reformation that the Fifth Lateran Council in the 1500s there, they resorted to strictly forbidding anyone to publish a book without prior censorship. They had to approve it. And they also prohibited anyone from preaching on the subject of the Antichrist. Why? Because it pointed to them. Now I want you to understand, they believed it pointed to them. They believed it to be the truth. If it, they didn't believe it to be the truth, they would just scoff at it. But they couldn't they couldn't uh, argue against it because it was the truth. You see what I'm saying? And so they came out and said, well, we got to get the Bible away from them so they don't know what the Word of God is so that they won't see these identifying marks and think it's us because it is us, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, I was reading last night about John Huss and, and uh, you had Wycliffe before him or Wycliffe, either way, it's pronounced either way, um, who translated the Bible into the English there in England and, and pointed to the, the Pope and the Antichrist Church and, the, and such. And here Huss is picking it up. Though uh, They came out, the Pope came out against Huss and burned all his writings. And this you see this pattern, you know, we got to get rid of the, you know, keep the people ignorant. Kind of what the, our country and education system is doing today, isn't it? Keep the people ignorant. Then you can control them. So where do you think, what spirit does that, you think? Right? But you see, what happened was the Catholic Church eventually came to the conclusion that it would not be able to ban or burn all the Bibles and all the, what they called heretical books and, and burn all the heretics that possessed or preached from them. There was a saying in it's uh, semen est sanguis Christianorum. And that's Latin. That's Latin for the blood of Christians is seed. 
And at that time of great persecution, the more blood that was shed by Christian, the greater was the crop. So they finally got the idea, we got to quit killing them because we kill them and 10 more spring up. And so this oppressive and crude tactic, what they were doing actually confirmed their identification as that harlot persecuting church of prophecy. It wasn't helping them, was it? And so a new and a subtler approach, remember subtler? They're subtle. They had to come up with a new approach. They needed to come up with this to counter the historical application of apocalyptic prophecy that pointed to the Catholic Church. They had to come up with something to you know, confuse people and isn't that what Babylon does, right? One major identifying characteristic uh, the Catholic Church needed to deal with was the time period of 1260 years that the Antichrist power was to rule according to Protestantism's biblical historicist interpretation. There simply is only one entity, friends, on earth that has ruled for this length of time after the fall of pagan Rome. Only one. And that's the Roman Catholic Church. That was their biggest obstacle. We've got to do something about the 1260 years because we've been in power for that long and um, we're the only power that's been in power that long. And What are we going to do about it? So a new interpretation or a new method would have to be found that deflected attention away from the 12th century papal rule of the Middle Ages. The result was actually twofold. First, and these are very important things. First, on August 15, 1534 AD, a man by the name of Ignatius Loyola, he founded a secretive Catholic order called the Society of Jesus. They're also known as the Jesuits. The Jesuits definitely, friends, don't judge that cover of them. They may look all pious on the outside, but they definitely have a dark history of intrigue and sedition through history. That's why they were expelled from Portugal in 1759. They were expelled from France in 1764, from Spain, from Naples, from Russia in 1820. Because they want to have control of the minds of people and they'll use whatever method they can to get that. Because to them, the ends does justify the means. Let me share this with you. This is Robert Carangola. 70 Weeks. This is from from, uh, his uh, book, 70 Weeks, The Historical Alternative. He says, Jesuit priests have been known throughout history as the most wicked political arm of the Roman Catholic Church. Edmund Paris, in his scholarly work, The Secret History of the Jesuits, reveals and documents much of this information. And I'm not going to keep going on that, but uh, there's lots of history there, and I encourage you to read up on it if you have questions. So that was the first thing. Ignatius Loyola originated the Jesuits. Second, two great Jesuit thinkers would propose two highly influential systems of interpreting Bible prophecy. Because remember, what, what was the Bible doing? It was pointing out the truth of the Antichrist power. 
and the Antichrist power had a reaction. We have to, we're, we're going to kill everybody, we're going to take the Bible away. Well, that's not working. Well, so now we're going to come up with imaginary, you know, um, systems of interpretation. Okay, and this is what happened. These, these two Jesuit thinkers. Um, I mean, they had to do something because the Bible plainly showed that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist power. Their very actions showed that what the Bible was laying out was right, though. Why else invent new methods? Right? And by the way, think of that individually. Don't we tend to do this when the Bible cuts across a path that we don't want to accept? Isn't that true? I mean, don't we try to reason away our guilt and come up with, well, there's a different way of interpreting that or there's a different... Right? So we have to step back and go, ooh, where's that spirit coming from? All right? Let's touch on these Jesuit thinkers here. The first one's name was Francisco Ribera. He lived in the 1500s. He proposed the futurist interpretation of prophecy. Remember the three that I shared with you? He, he's the one who came out with the futurist interpretation of prophecy and identified the Antichrist as an entity yet still to come and thus uh, made most prophecy inapplicable to the papacy at that time. That's what we're going to do. We're going to say, oh, no, 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 we can't be that. that that's somewhere way in the future. See, The Antichrist, said Ribera, was an individual and not a system. That's not what the Bible teaches. He said, no, it's an individual Antichrist who had ruled during the final seven years of the Christian era. There's that week that they're cutting off. Okay? And he derived many of his ideas from the early church fathers who only recently at his time at the Council of Trent had by the Roman Catholic Church, what they did, they placed the writings of the church fathers on equal ground with Scripture. So see, they had to do that. Because why? The Bible's pointing out that they're the Antichrist. So we have to come up with these fallacies that we are going to say are just as authoritative as the Word of God. So they said everything the church fathers had written is authoritative and is equal with Scripture. Now we can have the church fathers say anything they want because they're equal with the Scriptures. Right? And that's what they were doing here. And so, Ribera was not entirely consistent, though, with his... And how could he be? Because it's there, right? Because he, he says that Antichus Epiphanes was the little horn of Daniel 7. He was a type of Antichrist. See? But those following his method, what'd they do? They eventually had to take that 70-week prophecy and cut it up. They had to take the last of the week, the 70th week, Daniel 9. Throw it out there in the future somewhere. There's no biblical justification for this at all. But if you get the church fathers to write about it and say this is what you do, and people begin to believe that that's authoritative and on par with the scriptures, then there's mass confusion, isn't there? What are you going to believe? The genius of the futurist idea was that it appeared to use the Bible authoritatively and assigned all damaging associations often to times other than the present. That's getting the heat off the papacy, getting the heat off the church. It was ideally 
uh, ideally suited to deceive because it placed the Antichrist forever just beyond the horizon. Oh, he's coming, but he's not here yet. He's just over there. Always. Always in the future. He's never really going to show up. You know, Hal Lindsey, have you ever heard of him? He came out with a book years ago that was entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. And it predicted the soon end of our world as the Antichrist was coming. I think that was in the mid-80s. It was like 1983, 1984, somewhere in there, I think. Um, His theology comes from this false theory by Ribera. I'll get to more of those a little bit later. But Ribera said that the first few chapters of the apocalypse uh, applied to ancient pagan Rome. And the rest he limited to, again, a future three and a half literal years immediately prior to Jesus' return. And during that time, the Roman Catholic Church would have, this is his theory, would have fallen away from the Pope into apostasy. Notice the Pope then go into apostasy. But the Church falls away from the Pope and goes into apostasy. Then he proposed the Antichrist, a single individual, would, and let me tell you if you haven't heard these same ideas today, the single individual would persecute and blaspheme the saints of God. This person would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Have you heard that? He would abolish the Christian religion. He would deny Jesus Christ. He would be received by the Jews. He would pretend to be God. He would kill the two witnesses of God. He would conquer the world. So according to Ribera, the 1260 days, or in other parts of, of prophecy, it's, it's uh, uh, related as 42 months, or three and a half times, you know, or three and a half years. Um, he says that they weren't really 1260 years, they were just three and a half years. And therefore, none of the book of Revelation had any application to the Middle Ages or the papacy, but it's in the future. That's why people today, they say, oh, you can't understand Revelation because that's, that's going to be uh, looked at in the future sometime. We don't have to worry about Revelation. Okay. The sad thing is that I see more and more of this kind of false interpretation spreading within the Adventist movement. Some of these same principles are being used and taught. That was the first guy. There was another idea, though. There was a Jesuit, his name was Louis de Alcazar. He proposed a different system, but it led to a similar result. Again, perusing the writings of the early church fathers, right? Alcazar identified the Antichrist as having already appeared. See? For him, the Antichrist wasn't a system either, it was an individual, and it was Nero. Okay, Caesar. Nero Caesar. Later, this was applied much more to Antichus Epiphanes. You'll find some of these theories pin their hopes on him. He doesn't fit, though. Although, I mean, you you can be as determined as you want to try to fit his square peg into the round hole of prophecy. It ain't going to do it. He doesn't fit. He just doesn't. It's the wrong time. I could get in on why, and we will as we go on in our studies. Again, this became widely known as the preterist position and placed most prophetic events in the past. And since these events were in the past, well, the Antichrist could not be identified presently then with the Roman Catholic Church, right? So you see what they've done. 
they split it off into two theories. It's either way in the future or it happened in the past. Now the word Babylon is based on the word Babel and it means confusion by mixing. In the biblical sense, confusion by mixing with error. Isn't that exactly what Satan did with Eve back there in the Garden of Eden? And here is his representative living up to the biblical definition of Babylon while professing to be God's church on earth. And saying, we're not Babylon. But yet you've come out with two theories that are opposed to each other and you're professing to be God's church who God is a God of order, not confusion. So they, took, they still showed their true colors, didn't they? For the church of God does not teach opposing views of truth. Jesus said a house divided against itself, what? Will stand. Cannot stand. And yet here's the Catholic church teaching two dramatically opposing theories of the truth. Now the historicist method has the disadvantage of pointing out explicitly what the last day Antichrist beast power was. It pointed to direct prophetic fulfillment in the present. See? In a religious environment that was soon to become increasingly ecumenical, historicism's conclusions then would become excruciatingly unwelcome in many churches because they're listening more to the church fathers than the Bible. And by means of the historicist system, certain time prophecies were widely expected to reach fulfillment. Have you ever heard of the uh, Great Advent Awakening that happened in the mid-1800s? What were they saying? They were saying, and they were using the historicist method, and they were saying that Jesus is coming. And William Miller was, was teaching this, and, and that's where the Adventist, Adventist means Jesus' return, right? The Advent of Christ. Um, the Adventist movement was saying he was going to return and by time prophecies it was going to be in the year 1844. That's going to be the end of the world then and this is what was going on. It was the great Advent awakening. But what happened when Jesus didn't return? Well, these expectations appeared to be dashed then. The historicist method of interpretation, the right method to use to interpret prophecy fell into disfavor. They said, oh, that's the wrong way then because Jesus didn't. Instead of stepping back and saying, we interpreted something wrong, they said, well, you used the wrong method. Okay. And what filled in the vacuum? Futurism came in. You see, they were surface reading the scriptures and instead of digging to see where they made the mistake, they assumed the method of interpretation was flawed. But it's not flawed. Because God set it up. <laughs> and though futurism had been proposed late in the 16th century by Ribera, right, it only obtained a limited acceptance until a century later when Cardinal Robert Bellarmine took it up and he made it his main argument against the Protestants. Bellarmine, he's one of the best-known Jesuit apologists. He published a work in the 1500s it was entitled Polemic Lectures Concerning the Disputed Points of the Christian Belief Against the Heretics of This Time. There's a book title for you. But in that, he also denied 
a, a, a biblical principle of study concerning prophecy, he denied the day equals a year principle. And he pushed, he, he, what he did, he pushed the reign of Antichrist into a future period of three and a half literal years. And again, I, I tell you, I shudder because I see this same thing being taught in, in some historic Adventist circles today. They're teaching that there are dual applications of Bible prophecy and, and that goes strictly against uh, uh, the historical method of interpretation, which is the biblical method of interpreting prophecy. Now, there are a few exceptions to certain prophecies being dual, I'm talking about. But exceptions are always mentioned as exceptions. It'll tell you. Such as the destruction of Jerusalem. You read Matthew 24. Jesus lays out what's going to happen, but he didn't wasn't just speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. He was also speaking of just before his second coming. But he lays it out that way, and they understood that. Because they came and they said, tell us what you mean about the destruction and the signs of your coming. So the apostles understood that he was going to be sharing, that they were going to have similarities, see. And, but they're, they're mentioned that way. Um, these unstated dual prophecy teachings, though, what they do is they do away with the day equals a year principle. And so the teachers can accurately be called futurists, not historicists. So if you run into some Adventist minister who's teaching this dual prophecies when they're, they're not like the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, um, he's not a historicist. He's teaching futurism. And you'll find that what he's teaching does away with the day for a year principle. That's a big underpinning, friends, let me tell you. So you had Bellarmine, he came in and he started pushing this. Then you had Manuel de la Cunza. He was a Jesuit from Chile. What's interesting about him is he wrote a manuscript uh, that he entitled The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty. But he wrote it under the pen name of Juan Josapha Rabbi Pen Ezra. And he wrote this in about 1791. Now why would he write it under that name, assumed name? Jews. Yeah. He took a Jewish name to obscure the fact that he was actually a Catholic. Now what does that tell you? Right? He wanted his book to have a better acceptance in Protestantism. And, and remember, in the 1800s, at least in this country, Catholics were not a loved religion. <laughs> People did not look at Catholics highly. They recognized who the Antichrist power was. So in order to get his book into Protestant hands, he became a rabbi, a Jew. He really wasn't. But he was also an advocate of futurism. Lacunza was deliberately attempting to take the pressure off the papacy by proposing that the Antichrist was still off in the future. Then there came a guy by the name of Edward, Edward Irving. Edward Irving was a Scottish Presbyterian. And, and he was a forerunner of the, the Pentecostal and the Charismatic movements. What he did was he took Lacunza's work Remember, Rabbi? He took his work from, and he translated it from Spanish into English. And he entitled it, The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty with a Preliminary Discourse. He added to it, see. 
and he published it in London in 1827. I know history can be kind of dry, but this is important to understand where this theory came from, okay? And we're getting to the meat of it. He published this book in 1827, and it included, again, his own preface. Now, at this time, Edward Irving. Now, Edward Irving got caught up in, he was preaching the second coming of Jesus. Okay? He was doing all that. But then they had a, they had a um, prophecy conference. Okay? And he, there was a, a young 15-year-old Scottish girl. Her name was Margaret MacDonald. She was a member of Edward Irving's congregation. Remember, he was a Presbyterian in Scotland. She purported to have visions in 1830, early 1830s, that included a secret rapture of believers before the appearance of the Antichrist. So you want to know where this theory came from? Right here. Okay. So she, she said she had these visions and she informed her minister... Edward Irving, of her visions, she wrote, wrote it all out and sent him a letter. And Irving then, he went to this prophecy conference that was in Dublin, Ireland in 1830. It was held at Powerscourt Castle. Put that in the back of your head because it comes back. He promoted both futurism and a secret rapture based off of her visions. Okay? Then Samuel Maitland he was a scholar and he was a librarian to the Archbishop of Canterbury. He promoted and established futurism in England. In 1826, he published a widely read book attacking the Reformation and supporting Ribera's idea of a future one-man Antichrist. And for the next 10 years, in tract after tract, he continued his anti-Reformation rhetoric, just pounding it, pounding it, pounding it. Then after Maitland came a guy named James Todd. He was a professor of Hebrew at the university there in Ireland, Dublin. He accepted those futuristic ideas of Maitland. You see, you see the, the, the idea of the church fathers having uh, ecclesiastical authority on par with the scriptures is being played out by these guys. Haven't you ever heard... One of the things the Catholic Church says is you, you're not educated enough or called to understand what the Bible says. You understand why people today, I mean you can in a, in a way understand why people today hang on every word of their minister and they don't study themselves. This is where it originates. See? This guy was a professor and people looked up to him. He taught this. He talked about the futurism. He published pamphlets and books. He argued against historicism's interpretation of prophecy. Thus, he was arguing against God's principles of study. Then came a guy named John Henry Newman. This guy is very interesting. He was a member of the Church of England and a leader of the famous Oxford movement. You can look that up. And in 1850, he wrote his letter on Anglican difficulties, revealing that one of the goals in the Oxford movement was to finally absorb the various English denominations and parties back into the Church of Rome. This was in the 1850s. Incidentally, 
Newman later converted and became a cardinal in the Catholic Church. Is that a surprise? And he was beautified by Pope Benedict on September 19th, 2010 at an open-air mass in Birmingham, England. Beautification is, if you don't know what it is, it's a, it's a recognition that's accorded by the, the Catholic Church of a dead person's ascension to heaven and their capacity there then to intercede on behalf of individuals who pray to her name. You know, you've heard of intercession of the saints, right? He was beautified, this guy, John Henry Newman. Many believe that Maitland and Todd and Newman were Jesuit plants within Protestantism, and it's hard to argue otherwise, I think, when you look at it. Have you ever heard of John Nelson Darby? The Darby Bible? He was a Church of Ireland clergyman, later with the Plymouth Brethren. He promoted futurism, a secret rapture. Darby attended the series, remember at Powersport Castle? He was there. He heard Irving teaching it. He accepted it, took it. And uh, he actually went and visited Margaret MacDonald himself, personally. And then what he do? He comes to America. He visited America several times between 1859 and, and 1874, um, you know, almost 20 years, where he, he taught this to Protestant leaders, this futurist theology and secret rapture. Samuel um, Prideaux Tregeus, he was formerly with the Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren. He became a, a uh, Presbyterian he published a book, The Hope of Christ's Second Coming. He published that in 1864. And notice what he says about this theory. He was on to it. He says, I'm not aware that there was any definite teaching that there would be a secret rapture of the church at a secret coming until this was given forth as an utterance in Mr. Irving's church from what was there received as being the voice of the Spirit. So he's saying that's where it originated. And they were saying it was the Holy Spirit that was telling him that. He's disagreeing. He says, but whether anyone ever asserted such a thing or not, it was from that supposed revelation that the modern doctrine and the modern phraseology respecting it arose. It came not from Holy Scripture, but from that which falsely pretended to be the Spirit of God, while not owning the true doctrine of our Lord's incarnation in the same flesh and blood as His brethren, but without taint of sin. And what he's getting into there is what John talks about. The, the Antichrist is one who professes that Jesus didn't come in the same you know, fallen nature that we had, which they were promoting. Jesus was not that way. Have you heard of Schofield? Yeah. Cyrus Schofield? What'd he do? He what? He put notes in a Bible and then he published that. The Schofield Bible was instrumental in firmly establishing the Jesuit-inspired futurist interpretation in the Protestant Bible schools of the United States. And we can see the results of it. Almost every Christian ministry and seminary around the world today teaches this. In fact, let me list some real quickly here for you. These seminaries and ministries that have wholly abandoned 
the historical Protestant biblical teaching that the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, is the little horn of Daniel 7, is the first beast of Revelation 13, is the Antichrist. They've, they've done away with that and they promote futurism um, explicitly. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. Have you ever heard of the Dallas Theological Seminary? It's probably one of the biggest Protestant, Protestant seminaries in the world that is in our country, just about. They teach their ministers there and their students futurism and a secret rapture. In fact, they call it the secret rapture. They don't call it the secret rapture anymore. They call it the blessed hope. In fact, they have that in their doctrinal statement, this theory. What about John Walford? You may not know him. He's a professor there at the, the seminary. Um, he printed a, a, a book called The Rapture Question. Um, he was on the revision committee for the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, Insight for a Living, he teaches it. Because he came out, he used to be the president. I think he was, yeah, president of the, the Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, Charles Ryrie, again, Dallas Theological Seminary. He came out with the Ryrie Study Bible. Right along the line of Schofield has this theory in it. Hal Lindsey, we talked about him. He's definitely into it. J. Vernon McGee taught it. Bible radio series. Of course, he's passed away, but they still uh, broadcast his radio programs. Um, Kenneth Taylor. He's the former director of Moody Press. He is actually the founder of the Tyndale House of Publishing. He's the author of The Living Bible. This is in it. His, this theory is, is eat up with that. Um, he actually, he, he, he published and published uh, Tim LaHaye's and Jerry Jenkins' books about the, the uh, Left Behind series. That's all futurism. That's this whole theory. Thomas Ice, Pre-Trib Research Center. He's in with Tim LaHaye. Uh, Reynolds Showers, um, he wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel, splitting that 70th week out, futurism. Moody Bible Institute, we've all heard of them. They teach it. They promote it. Sunday School Lessons, Assembly of God, or Secret Rapture Theory of, uh, in everything. They accept it as pure truth. Uh, Western Theological Seminary, that's the alma mater of Tim LaHaye. Um, then Tim teaches, Tim LaHaye teaches the School of Prophecy and uh, Trinity Broadcasting. They promote it. Jack Van Impey, he promotes it. Jerry Falwell, John Hagee. Um, what is that ministry out there? The King is Coming, they call it. Um, it's in Colton, California. They push it. Grant Jeffrey, Hilton Sutton, Zola Levitt, John Ankerberg, Perry Stone, Rod Parsley, Dave Hunt, they all are proponents of futurism. And so, friends, I'm going to tell you, no matter how many ministers and theologians agree upon it, you can't just arbitrarily peel off the 70th week of the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 and insert a tribulation there. You just can't do that. Biblically, you cannot do it. Now, of course, they do it because they believe that the church fathers are on par with Scripture. And, you know, we used to call that, I used to hear it called backdoor Catholic. That's essentially what they are. 
they have accepted this Jesuit theory and they're teaching it as truth. It's that Franklin guy, isn't it? Jason or... Franklin. Yeah, Franklin. He's yeah, it sounds, guy, it sounds familiar. Go famous. You talking about Franklin Graham? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they all, because they come through these seminaries, see? Now, I want to clarify something, in case you, you misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not judging the genuineness of these guys. I'm not judging their ministries. I believe they probably are very sincere people. And they have their own walk with God. I believe that. Um, but they're deceived in the wrong idea concerning Bible prophecy. And, and, and so... Of, a vast number of Christians the world over have been taught to interpret Bible prophecy along the very lines that hundreds of years ago the agents of the papacy fed the world. Today, most conservative Christians follow the futurist system. The most liberal Christians you find follow actually the preterist view. It all happened in the past. But there's one major group that remains still adhering to the historicist system. You know who those are? They're God's people. <laughs> Give me the Bible. The Bible only. So, what's the bottom line? Again, is the in interpretation method consistent with the principles we find in the Bible? Does it come from the Bible or is it imposed upon the Bible? If futurism or preterism uh, can truly meet uh, these criteria that the Bible lays out, then we've got to consider them as being valid. Um, but the only method letting Scripture interpret itself is the historicist method. <laughs> it's the only one that does it. And remember, both futurism and preterism historically are predominantly based upon the writings of the early church fathers, so-called, that's what I say, uh, and not upon Scriptures. Um, and so only a system truly based upon the Bible can have our allegiance. I speak for myself. Give me the Bible. That's what I want. Um, that's the only thing I trust wholeheartedly. Historicism derives from Scripture the understandings that the prophecies are fulfilling sequentially. And so it's dynamic. Uh, it as do the other two methods, sees some elements as in the past and some as future, of course, uh, in fulfillment, but it's all in harmony with Scripture. It doesn't exclude virtually everything from the present as the other two methods do. Well, of course, nothing's happening in Bible prophecy today. That's in the future or that's in the past. When would you ever get there? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> See? And, and their source. What is the source of these theories? And what is the reason that these theories originated? Because the Bible was teaching that the little horn power, the beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist power, is the Roman Catholic Church. That's the whole purpose for those theories. And I believe that Christians today are really behind in investigating these things. It's late in the hour, I think. Don't you? To be drinking from this bottle fed to us from the Jesuits? And so we need to reinvestigate the scriptures and the outcomes presented by the historicist system. It's important. It doesn't matter if it's politically correct or not. Or if it's socially embarrassing. 
Um, we need to know, those of us who want to know what the truth is, we want to know what the truth is, regardless. And sadly, we are alive to witness the final triumph, actually, of futurism. Christians by the millions are buying into an ill-founded belief system, one that was only created to salvage the reputation of the beast of Revelation 13. And what shall we say of the so-called Protestant Christians that are buying it? They may not realize it, uh, but they're accepting teachings that are founded by the Roman Catholic Jesuit order entirely for the purpose of destroying, completely destroying Protestantism. How many Protestant churches do you see today that are protesting the Roman Catholic Church? Very hard to find, isn't it? Very hard. Something for Adventists to think about. You know, without this biblical method of interpretation, this historicist method, the Bible method, there is no Adventist movement. There is no three angels' messages. That would be pushed off somewhere in the future. Or it might have happened somewhere in the past. But God has laid out prophecy for us in order. For God's a God of order. And all their methods of interpretation are meant to destroy order and to destroy the movement of God, to destroy His people. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. The arbitrary amputation of the 70th week of Daniel, chapter 9, by Protestants and, and evangelical Christians has absolutely no foundation in Scripture whatsoever. And we're going to see that in our study this afternoon. We're going to see it. We're going to see what the Bible exactly does say. And by God's Spirit, we will interpret it correctly using His method. Amen? Amen. I'll close here with what John said. 1 John 2.28 And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. May that be so. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much uh, for your guiding Holy Spirit, the promise to guide us into the truth. We claim that promise. We know that using the right method of study, especially into prophecy, and we'll get into some more uh, principles later this afternoon when we come back to your Holy Word, we know that it is to lead us into the truth, that we may be prepared for that time when Jesus is to return, that we may not be deceived by this Antichrist power. Help us, Lord, to, to discern what is truth from error and to share this truth with others. We thank you so much for your Bible. It is truly a lamp unto our feet. And may we hold it high so others may see the light and come out of the darkness. Please continue to be with us this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name.